When we think of a new year, we oftentimes think of hope, but sometimes our hope is short-sighted. We're only looking at uh, this life. And what's so great about Revelation 19 is it gives us the hope, the reality that Christ is going to return. When we describe hope, we think of it oftentimes as a wish or a whim, but biblical hope is the confident expectation of coming good. When Jesus died, rose again, and ascended to be with the Father, the disciples are witnessing this, looking up at the sky, and the angel comes to them and says, guys, what are you doing? You've got a job to do. In the same manner that he was taken up, he's going to return. Jesus is going to return on Mount of Olives. We know that biblically. We know that scripturally. Christ is going to return. So that's our hope, and that's where we fix our attention. There's two words that sum up this chapter. It's alleluia and amen. As heaven is watching these events unfold of Christ's return, they respond with alleluia, which is praise the Lord, and amen, which is so be it. We get to enter into that chorus this morning through faith. If God praise you, praise the Lord, hallelujah, and amen, so be it. Christ, you're coming, you are returning. Verse 1, after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. After these things, what things? It's been a few weeks since we've been in Revelation, but God brings judgment upon Babylon, this world's system, economic Babylon, religious Babylon, political Babylon, that had destroyed so many lives. And the response of heaven, this response of the great multitude in heaven, of God bringing this just judgment, is alleluia. When we think of heaven, think of the amazing corporate worship that is going to take place. Don't you love singing together? I mean, it's great to sing by ourselves and worship the Lord, but there's something powerful about God's people taking time to be together and lift our voices to the Lord. Don't think of heaven as you being alone at the throne room of God with your Spotify account. This is a great multitude lifting their voice in worship to the Lord. Alleluia. There's something about a a big multitude of people responding at once. Some good college football games that are happening right now. Wyatt and I watched the Alabama game against Cincinnati with, with, with some friends. And, and man, those Alabama fans, they're committed, aren't they? When there's a good play for, for Alabama, there's an hallelujah and amen. You have thousands of people that are in chorus to, to what's going on. And so we, in faith, look forward to this moment when this great multitude responds with hallelujah. How about the word hallelujah? This is the first time it's actually used in the New Testament. It's the Greek equivalent of hallelujah with an H in the Old Testament. And both hallelujah and hallelujah mean praise the Lord. Four times it's used in the New Testament and all four times it's in Revelation 19. Ascribing to the Lord that he's the one who saves. He's the one who is glorious. He's the one who has honor and power. All of those belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. 
because he's judged the great harlot who has corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. The multitude in heaven that's watching this judgment take place says that God's judgments are righteous and they are true. The great harlot is Babylon that led people's hearts away from the Lord, one true worship of God. When we see God's judgments unfold, we're going to ascribe, God, your judgments are righteous and true. As we've studied the book of Revelation, God pouring out his wrath, God's not out of control. He's not angry with this this hot temper. It's his righteous justice. If God is righteous and he is holy, at some point he has to hold sin accountable. So this is the worship that's given to the Lord that his judgments are righteous and his judgments are are true. And they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. The smoke of Babylon, the judgment of, of Babylon. And 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen and Alleluia. The 24 elders, we don't know who they are specifically. It doesn't seem that they're angels. As we study angels in Revelation and the 24 elders, God doesn't call them angels. They seem to be believers that God has lifted up to this position of honor and leadership in heaven. God purposely doesn't give us their names because I think we'd make too much of them. It's not about who they are, it's about God's glory. They would be the first ones to tell you that. They're mentioned six times in the book of Revelation, and every time they're worshiping. Every time they're worshiping the Lord. Why? Because they see Jesus on the throne. And as they see Jesus on the throne, they can't help but worship. As we see more of who God is, Make that a prayer for 2022. God, I want to see more of of who you are. Understand your glory. You seated upon the throne, then our response is going to be to worship. The four living creatures in Revelation 4.8, we see that they constantly, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So the great multitude, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, all in worship of the Lord, And they say, amen, which is so be it, in agreement, alleluia. Can you think of a time where you give a amen? Maybe you're really hungry and someone says, let's eat. And you're like, amen, so be it. Let it be so. Let's do it, right? And that's the reality as God is pouring out his judgment. There's so be it. God, you're right. You're right in pouring out this judgment upon the world. And and praise the Lord, alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. So a voice comes from the throne and commands, praise our God, all of his servants, all of those who fear the Lord, both both small and great. Everybody praise the Lord. It's proper. It's right. It's good. It's pleasant for the Lord to receive praise uh, from us. The book of Hebrews commands us the same way. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to him. God wants our mouths to be used to give him glory by praising him through thanksgiving. And sometimes it is the sacrifice of praise. 
We don't always feel like praising. We don't always feel like worshiping. In fact, our flesh oftentimes wants to grumble and wants to complain, but God didn't design our mouths for the purpose of grumbling and complaining. When I'm grumbling and I'm complaining, I'm missing God's will for my life. Aren't you amazed how quickly life is going? I feel like 2021 was a blur. It just went so, so fast. And I know this is kind of cliche, but it seems the older that I get, the faster time goes. Even early in our marriage, early in our 20s, a year just seemed like so much time. And now it's like, man, a year feels like a month. I know I'm going to be standing here, Lord willing, doing Christmas Eve services again. It's coming, I'm going to blink and it's going to be time for, for Christmas Eve uh, celebration. Before I know it, I'm going to be home with the Lord, right? And that's the good news. But how am I going to spend my days? How am I going to invest 2022? Am I going to go through my life, go through this next year, grumble, grumble, murmur, murmur, oh, I hate this, this I'm so bothered by this, or am I going to enter into the chorus of heaven? Am I going to enter into, Jesus, you're on the throne. Jesus, you're good. You, you love me. Thank you so much for your provision, your, your blessing, your presence, your, your love in my life. I don't know about you, but when I do go through my days in worship and praise and thanksgiving, instead of grumbling and complaining, I enjoy them a whole lot more, regardless of what my circumstances are. So enter into the course of heaven. Enter into the agenda of heaven and worship the Lord. Praise our God is the command that's given to us. In verse 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters and as the sound of the mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. This great multitude together with one voice, it's so loud, it sounds like the voice of many waters. If you ever feel like worship's too loud at RMC, we're just trying to prepare you for heaven. Because <laughs> this is not going to be a, a quiet affair. You're not going to be able to hear yourself. If you're next to a big waterfall or you're next to Niagara Falls, you can't even hear yourself talk or the, or the person next to you. And there's voices like mighty waters coming together to worship together, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Do you have to come together as believers to, to worship the Lord, to be God's child? No, absolutely not. The church doesn't save us. The only one that can save us is, is, is Jesus. Are we blessed when we come together as God's people to worship the Lord? Absolutely. Does God meet us in a special way in collective corporate worship? Absolutely. Is there something unique that happens when we gather together and we say, we're going to sing together? Yes. Yes, absolutely. One of the things I think that the enemy has done to us over the last two years has got us out of the habit of corporate worship. As churches closed and everything went online and man, I'm so thankful for online. I'm so thankful that we're able to provide the live stream, but my heart is that the live stream would be a bridge for people to come together in corporate worship. If it's here, praise the Lord. If it's another church, praise the Lord. But man, God is good as we worship the Lord together, as we lift our voices 
collectively. And here they come together collectively. And what do they express? The Lord God omnipotent reigns. The word omnipotent, don't use it all the time. It's to possess completely, to have ultimate power and authority, the ability to do everything. This is the message that we need to hear this morning is, is the Lord reigns and the chaos of our lives personally, and the chaos of what's going on in the world. God is, is on the throne. Jesus is going to return. He's all powerful and he reigns. In verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. The marriage of the Lamb. The bride has prepared herself, made herself ready. God gives us this powerful imagery of his love for us, his people, and says that Christian marriage is likened to Christ in the church. That husbands represent Christ and wives represent the church. The way a husband feels about his wife is a, is a small picture of the way that Jesus feels about his bride, us, his people. The church is the bride. And the culmination of all things is the church. All of those that have been saved through all time periods are gathered together at the marriage feast of the Lamb. For the Jews, reading this, they would understand what a big deal this was because in their culture during the time of Jesus and John the disciple, there was no greater party than a wedding. You'd get married and you would actually throw a feast for seven days. Now I have three daughters and one son. I can't imagine the cost (laughs) of a wedding where I have to feed everybody for seven days, right? Now, wonder they ran out of wine and Jesus had to turn the water into wine. You would stop work. You would stop everything. Man, if you got invited to a marriage feast, it was the ultimate celebration. I don't know how wonderful it was for the couple. Hey, here's your honeymoon. You're going to spend time with extended family for seven days. (laughs) But it was this wonderful time involving food. And as we look forward to to heaven, this ultimate relationship with Jesus gathered together with all people and Jesus has prepared food for us. Did you know God's into food? Have you ever thought about it that way before? He could have created us like an iPhone where you just plug in at the end of the night and get all the nutrients that that you need. We'd probably be more healthy because you'd get the perfect amount of calories, right? This is exactly what you need. But God designed us actually fairly weak where we need food. We need to stop and drink. We need to stop and eat. And it's for a purpose of causing us to rely upon him in dependence and thanksgiving and bring us together as people. Think about how much less time we would have with people if it wasn't for food. We've just finished a week of feasting with food, haven't we? with family and friends, and it's glorious to be able to spend time together. God had feasts for the children of Israel, and they all involved food as they were celebrating the Lord, as they were celebrating each other. We read the Gospels, and Jesus was always eating. He was the friend of sinners. He would have meals with the sinners. He rose from the dead, and he's having meals with the disciples. He's preparing breakfast for Peter to restore him. So God 
as this feast that is prepared for us and how our hearts long for this. Imagine the food in heaven. You're not going to count carbs. You're not going to count calories. It is going to be organic, right? (laughs) But by the way, 10 out of 10 people that eat organic die. Even even if you eat organic, you're eventually going to to die. And yes, the the food is going to be wonderful, but the relationship with Christ, the bridegroom, his, his love for us, the love of the church for Jesus that we've prepared ourselves, that we're ready to enter into eternity with Christ through, through the gospel. And verse 8, and, it, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So the church, the bride, is in this fine linen prepared for Christ. Now, don't be confused. Salvation is only provided through the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus that we're robed in. We're robed in Christ's righteousness. We're justified, declared righteous by the Lord. So where does this righteous acts of the saints come in? Not to earn or deserve salvation, but to express worship to the Lamb, to express worship to Jesus. Please hear me on this. You are never going to regret serving the Lord. Never. It doesn't always pan out the way that we think it will in this life, but in the eternal life, God is going to graciously reward for serving him. Jesus tells us if you bring a cup of cold water to a child in his name, he's going to reward. What you do in private, he's going to reward openly. And as we get to heaven, somehow God graciously gives us reward for those righteous acts and we're able to present them to Jesus in worship at this marriage feast. In verse 9, then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb and said to me, these are the true sayings of God. You're truly blessed if you're called to this marriage supper. Who's going to be called to this feast? Those who trust the gospel, those that know Christ as their savior. And Jesus has died for the world. It's an open invitation to those who will believe. So if you're not certain if you're going to be invited to this marriage feast, you need to trust Christ for salvation. You need to accept him as your your savior. And these are the true sayings of God. In verse 10, and I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John gets confused and he bows down to worship the angel who is giving him the message. And the angel is quick to say, hey, don't do that. I'm your brethren and I have the testimony of Jesus, but our goal and heart is to worship Christ. If John can make this mistake we can make this mistake as well. And yes, the the church of God gets all geeked out about angels. I mean, if someone saw an angel today, they'd be so excited. But if they read the gospels about Jesus, they may not be as excited. Well, you need to be a lot more excited about Jesus revealed in scripture than even if you, you saw an angel. But I think more of our tendency is we make too much of pastors and leaders. We, we tend to put pastors up on a pedestal or an author or a Christian artist instead of putting our worship on, on Christ. 
Every leader is a sinner, and every leader is going to fail you and ultimately disappoint you, but Jesus never will. So give your worship to Christ. Put your focus uh, upon Christ. Don't, don't allow a, a pastor to be put on a pedestal in our hearts and, and in our lives. This is a powerful phrase. It's worth underlining at the end of verse 10, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Why is studying prophecy important? There's some that really shy away from biblical prophecy because prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Prophecy points us to Christ. Prophecy is foretelling future events, something that hasn't happened yet that God predicts. And there's so many prophecies that point to Christ. We think about it in the first coming of Christ. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin. So many fulfilled prophecies in the first coming and even more in the second coming. I like these two quotes. It says, any teaching of prophecy that takes our minds and hearts away from him is not being properly communicated. So if you're studying biblical prophecy and you walk away in fear and confusion, it's not being properly communicated or received. You should study biblical prophecy and be more amazed at who Jesus is because prophecy is the testimony of Christ. This is by Walvert. It says, this means that prophecy at its very heart is designed to unfold the beauty and loveliness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't you love that? Prophecy is designed to unfold the beauty and the loveliness of, of Jesus. Verse 11 now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is Christ's second coming. Comes upon a white horse. Why a white horse? Because it speaks of purity, it speaks of victory. Roman generals would come in after conquest with four white horses and their chariots, and Jesus comes riding upon a white horse. Contrast this when Jesus came in his first coming, he was riding upon a donkey at the triumphal entry, emphasizing his humility, the suffering servant. But now as he comes as the conquering king, he comes on the white horse. Three titles are given to Jesus in this section, and the first is he's faithful and he's true. Aren't you thankful that God is faithful and he's true? In this very changing world, Jesus is unchanging. He's faithful. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But he's also true. And his truth sets us free. We know the truth and the truth sets us free. He judges and he makes war. Brought peace in his first coming and his second coming. He brings his righteous judgment and makes war with those who are opposed to Christ. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. These piercing eyes of our resurrected Savior, seeing through all things. Ultimate authority represented in many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows except himself. Why? Why? Whenever we speak of the name of God, it speaks of his character and his nature. And this expresses that there's always more to learn about the Lord. There's so much that God 
communicates about himself, but there's still more to learn about the Lord. You're not going to be bored in eternity because there's so much more to learn about the Lord. Here he has this name that no one knows except himself. Verse 13, he was clothed with the robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. This is the second title. He's faithful and true, but he's also the word of God. We're in fine linen as the church, but Jesus is in a robe that appears as though it's been dipped in blood. Why? So picture Christ on this white horse with this red robe as if it had been dipped in blood. I think this is really important because as Jesus comes and he brings his judgment, he wants us to remember that he first was the one who died for our sins. As we've studied in Revelation, Jesus is revealed as the lamb even more than the lion in the book of Revelation. Even the marriage feast of the lamb, it's the lamb. Why the lamb? We're reminded Jesus has died for our sins. Yes, Christ will bring judgment in his second coming, but he delights in bringing mercy. He delights in bringing grace and forgiveness. This is a world that's rejected him. This is a world that's resisted him, not wanted anything to do with him. And ultimately, God brings his judgment. But he would much rather bring his grace and his forgiveness. How about this title, the word of God, that Jesus is titled the word of God. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. A name for Jesus is the word because the word of God points to Jesus. Christ rose from the dead, was walking on the road of Emmaus with some of his disciples. They didn't know that they were talking with the resurrected Savior, hadn't recognized him. Jesus went through the law and the prophets and said, this points to me, this points to me, this points to me. That's a teaching that I would have loved to hear. I'm looking forward to hearing that from Christ in in heaven. The scripture is going to last for eternity and and Jesus is going to open up the scriptures and say, oh, right here, this is where it pointed to me. The whole message of the Bible is that we are sinners, that we've fallen short, but God in his love sent his son, his only son, to die for our sins so that we could receive grace and forgiveness and be the child of God. Do you know you can read the Bible and get the wrong message? The scribes and the Pharisees studied their Bible. It's not that they lacked for time in the word of God, but as they studied it, they made it all about themselves and specifically their own works of righteousness instead of seeing their need for for Jesus. If you read the scripture and you don't get good news, you're getting the wrong message. And Satan loves to twist the message of scripture. He loves to cause us to read the word and to feel condemnation or to twist it and make it into legalism. Don't misunderstand me. God does call us to holiness. But that call to holiness comes from his sacrifice, from his unconditional love, not us trying to earn or deserve our salvation. The message of the Bible is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Thus, Jesus has the title, the word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Believers coming with Christ. In verse 15, 
Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, sometimes like boxers or, or fighters will have their robe that they wear and it's got their fighting name on it. Well, here Jesus with his red robe, here's his name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it's also written on his thigh that he is king, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he's now holding the nations accountable. As we view our world today from a geopolitical international context, I think it's safe to say that most of the nations of the world don't feel accountability to God. Most leaders of nations don't see themselves as being accountable to God, ours included. Most of our leaders are pretty bold in their attitude and rejection of God and rejection of of the truth. I've got a bad habit that I'm going to try to stop in 2022. It's it's reading the news. (laughs) Might be good for me to stop reading the news, but... You open up international news and it looks like Russia's going to invade Ukraine. They don't feel accountable to God. They're just like, yeah, we're going to go take Ukraine. And it doesn't seem like anybody's going to stop them. It's possible that China will do the exact same thing with Taiwan. I mean, who's going to hold China accountable? They own everybody. Everybody owns China money, right? So, so who's going to hold China accountable? Well, all the nations of the world are accountable to the Lord. And there is going to be a day, and I can't wait for this day, when Jesus comes and he returns and he rules the nations with a rod of iron, sets up his authority here on earth. All of the political desires that we have as believers is ultimately a yearning for Jesus to be in charge. That's that's really what we're longing for. Is it important and is there a place for believers to be involved in the political process and run for office? Absolutely. I think we've seen that even more than ever. But as we get involved in the political process, we live in a great country where we get to vote and we get to run for office. We need to keep the larger vision and that's ultimately that Jesus is going to rule and reign. If there's believers in leadership Hopefully their leadership points to the ultimate leadership of of Christ. Even as we are engaging politically that we remember, how do we do this in the gospel? How do we engage politically in a way where we can talk with people about the gospel? That we can talk about political convictions, but then share with them, I've even got a greater conviction, and that's that Jesus loves you. Does that come across in our political convictions? So yes, get involved politically, but look forward to the fact that Jesus is going to to rule and reign. Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the captains and the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of the horses and those who sit on them. 
and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. So the birds are called to eat the flesh, the carnage of those that are making war against the Lord. There's two suppers in Revelation 19. Did you notice that? The first is the marriage feast of the Lamb for those that ever accepted Christ, humbled themselves to trust in, in the gospel. That's the feast you want to be at. But there's another feast here for the birds, for those that have rejected the Lord, the battle of Armageddon. Those are making war against Christ. Christ is bringing judgment literally upon those that want to make war against him. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against all his army. This is where a Christ-rejecting world is headed. Not tolerating Jesus, but actually wanting to make war against Christ. Wanting to destroy Jesus if possible. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence. The beast is the Antichrist, and the false prophet, they're captured. By which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. So eternal judgment upon the Antichrist, the false prophet, and those that had received the mark of the beast and worshiped the beast's image. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceed from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. 1 Peter 1 verse 13 says this, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is kind of a strange term for us. Therefore gird up the loins of your mind. Because in the ancient world, men wore robes, so if they were going to go to action, they would have to gird up their, their robe. So the idea is our mind is we want to gird up our mind for for action. We want to prepare our mind for action. Also, our mind is to be sober, which means level-headed. Not given to highs, not given to lows, level-headed. Because we put our hope fully on the grace that is to be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're hoping... And resting our hope, our confident expectation of coming good on what? The second coming of Jesus Christ. And this is where our hope needs to be. This is where our hope needs to lie. There's two sides of me with this. And maybe you can relate when it comes to the second coming of Christ. One is I am so excited. I am certain about one thing with 2022, it is going to bring us closer to the second coming of Jesus Christ than anybody's ever been before, right? I get really excited about the marriage feast of the Lamb. Man, it's going to be incredible. No more sin, no more suffering. This amazing feast with, with the Lord, with believers, all believers. Man, it's, it's going to be, be so good. But then the other side of me is I get busy in life and I stop thinking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Consumed with bills that have got to be paid, laundry that needs to be done. Man, laundry feels eternal in this life. Just never quits. 
dishwasher's broken, got to get that fixed, groceries and the challenges of life. And we're in a, a little bit of a hiatus here, but man, unless the rapture happens, Monday's coming and we got to go back to work, right? Uh, the holiday is over. And so as we get into the grind of, of daily life, it's easy to forget about the second coming of Jesus Christ. In Philippians, it says, let your gentleness be known to all because Christ is at hand. So as the world's going crazy, it's not that we don't engage in the world, but we're able to re- engage in the world with this hope of saying, hey, I know Jesus is going to come. I know Jesus is going to make all things right. If our takeaway of the second coming of Jesus Christ is that we don't get engaged in this life, I think we've missed the message. If you're like, Jesus is coming, I'm racking up the credit card debt. No, that's not really the message. The message is that Jesus is coming, so I want to live for him. I want to live in confident expectation. I want to point as many people to the grace of God as possible because if the heart of God is that people would experience his grace and forgiveness, not his judgment, then this is the time to be loving and sharing. This is the time to be pointing people to Jesus Christ. Really wrestle with that a little bit this morning. Do I really believe that Jesus is coming? That Revelation 19 is true? And if so, if I do believe he's coming, then how would that impact my my daily life? Because this is an important teaching Jesus told us to watch and be ready for his coming. It was important to the early church. It's all over the epistles. So it's got to be important for our hearts and our lives to lift our eyes and go, Jesus, you're coming. So what does that mean now for the rest of today? What does that mean for tomorrow morning? Lord, I want to love you. I want to serve you. I want to know you. I want to make you known. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Jesus, we are so thankful that you're coming. And we know that even creation groans for you to come, for you to to make things right. And we see these signs that are taking place that are going to lead up to, to the end. And our hearts cry out, Lord, come quickly. Jesus, would you come? And we do believe that you're going to come, but would you strengthen our unbelief? Would you remind us in the trials of life, in the busyness of life, that you are coming? Give us a heart for the lost. So would you take this this message and bring fruit into our hearts and lives? And, And right now, we choose to enter into this chorus of alleluia, amen. Jesus, you are all powerful and you reign and you're here with us. You invite us into your throne room to worship you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.